You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So when I was in high school, I was a theater kid. And when you were performing a play during the first rehearsal, you were given a script. You're told to read and memorize the lines so you can step into the character and find yourself in the story. And if you have been in a play before, you know there is something called Tech Week, right? It's typically the week of the play, and it's a dress rehearsal. Pretty much everything runs exactly how it will be run during the live show with a few audio and technical kinks worked out. And at some point, it's highly likely that someone will forget their line during the dress rehearsal, and they'll say, line, and the director will feed them the line, and they will continue on. Now, in theater, you're not memorizing the lines so you can recite them during the play. You are memorizing the lines so you can become the character. In fact, they call it in character, where when you step on the stage, you embody the character, right? You know the backstory of the character. You know how they would react. You know their mannerisms and their body movement and their facial reactions and their, uh, their countenance. You're not merely reciting lines on stage. You're someone on stage. You are that character. That's what makes theater so compelling. It's a story. If you've ever seen a Broadway play... You know what I'm talking about, right? They're not robots parroting lines in their head. They're characters caught in a wild plot telling a story. Josh Porter says it like this. Remembering is not bringing something to your mind. Remembering is bringing something to your mind and then acting on it and therefore affecting reality as a result. The analogy may be a bit clumsy, but I believe it gets to the heart of communion. Our involvement in the eating of the bread and the cup is not about us bringing to our minds something of the past. It's about bringing something from the past into the present and then acting on it that will affect future reality. We get to bring the past event of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension even into the present And then let that affect what it means for us to live as followers of Jesus toward the future. The table is this explosion of time, past, present, and future. And one of the aspects of our modern conception of church is that we don't appreciate the history of church, much less know it. But the idea of communion and the Lord's Supper has a ton of history to it, both inside and outside the scripture. So we're going to take a little tour through some of the history of the table and how we got to where we are today. And I'm going to weave in and out of what each of the names of the Lord's Supper means for us, as well as some historical reasons of how we've arrived at, it, at them. So the first phrase that describes the table is the breaking of bread. <clears throat> to break bread. This comes from Luke 22. It says, he says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying... This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I want you to notice an interesting pattern that we see established. Jesus took the bread. He blessed it, or he gave thanks for it. He broke it, and he gave it. He took it, blessed it, broke it, and gave it. Now, remember the story that Luke tells at the end of his gospel account? It's Cleopas and another traveler, who we don't know by name, but can infer they followed Jesus during their time on earth, are walking to Emmaus, and Jesus begins to walk with them. And they don't recognize him, and he asks 
than what they're talking about. And they're like, where have you been? <laughs> Jesus, the, the man whom we love has died. We thought he was going to be the, the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. And now just a few women went to see him at the tomb this morning and his body is gone. And then Jesus actually calls them out and says, you fools, how slow are you to believe all the prophets have said about this man who was going to come and suffer and then enter into his glory. And then something amazing happens. They sit down at a table and this is really the first supper of life after death. This is Luke 24, 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him at the table. Why? Well, you would never step into someone's house and assume host responsibilities, but Luke uses the same language that's used in the Last Supper to describe the breaking of the bread in this first supper after the resurrection. Jesus is the host of the meal and the meaning of the meal is about him. Luke 24, 35 says, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he, Jesus, was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So a meal that happened in the past five to six days earlier at the Last Supper was now brought into the present and Maundy Thursday has made its way into Easter Sunday. The table has transformed our Fridays into Sundays. And it takes the gruesome reality of Good Friday and tells the unbelievable good news of Easter Sunday. We are like travelers to Emmaus, eating and drinking in the presence of the Spirit of Jesus, celebrating with hope and a future, communing with God around a table. The second name is sharing or koinonia, communion. It's where we get the idea of communion. And Luke, again, tells a story of the early church. And one of the most famous passages used to talk about the church we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47. It goes like this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. A lot to go into here, not enough time, so here's the main point I want you to walk away with. At first glance, there looks to be four activities taking place. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But really, there are two categories, teaching and fellowship. And then fellowship is subdivided into breaking of bread and prayer. So there is a link between the breaking of bread and fellowship. And the Greek word for fellowship here is koinonia, where we get the word communion. And Luke uses the terminology of the breaking of bread in talking about the Last Supper in his gospel. So when he references it in the book of Acts, he is referencing the family meal. 
The, the body, the church, gathered together with the Spirit of Jesus for communion, for intimacy, for, for friendship, for prayer, for scripture, for encouragement. The idea of fellowship and what we call communion was not merely spiritual and invisible, but it was concrete and visible. In other words, it was, uh, it was embodied, it was felt. And it makes sense the new community would gather daily in the temple for prayers and teaching of the apostles. And they also gathered in homes for koinonia, for fellowship, for communion, for a meal, for joy and generosity, for hope, for celebration. Now, in the very early church, communion was considered a daily meal for many folks. And this went on for some time. But while it was practiced for many on a daily basis, as the years went on, the whole church would practice it on the first day of the week. And that became the norm throughout much of the uh, first century. And there's some theological significance to that. The first day of the week is the day of remembrance, the day of our deliverance, because it was the day on which God raised Jesus from the dead and created a new family, the church. And the church gathers for lots of reasons. But at the bottom of those reasons is one reason, for the celebration of the resurrection. That death is not a period, it's a comma, that there is life again. And not only life with God, but life with the family of God, koinonia, communion. The next name is the Eucharist. Right, the earliest record outside of the New Testament recounting the Lord's Supper is found in what is called the Didache. It is a document that was published sometime toward the end of the first century, and in this handbook for the church, there are instructions around the meal. It instructs those who eat it to give thanks at the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the thank you meal. The Greek word for thank you is Eucharisto. This is probably the most common word used to describe the meal around the world, and we are going to get to how the Eucharist was changed from a table to an altar in just a moment. But I want us to think about the posture of thanksgiving. All of life is a gift. Every breath is gift. Every skill is gift. Every friendship is, is gift. Every new adventure is gift. Every job, every meal is a gift. Creation, sport, joy, laughter, the sunrise, the bike ride, the ridiculous orange leaves outside right now. The warm meal and the cold drink and the roof and the promotion and the baby and the parent. It's all a gift. And when we gather for the Lord's Supper, it should stir gratitude in us. We do not deserve this meal. We do not deserve anything. The meal is a literal gift. God has come to us and given us his spirit so that not only did he walk with us, but now he lives in us. There is nowhere in the world that we should feel more gratitude and express more gratitude than around the table of God with the family of God. How are you, how am I at a table with God and his children? You have done nothing to earn the love of God and neither have I. It is God in his kindness and us in our undeservingness that makes us give thanks. Let's be a people who cultivate more gratitude, less cynicism and more awe, less of a critical spirit and more wonder, less prone to antagonize and more moments to surely stop, less hurrying and more slowing down. And not only that, but, but think about the provision of food itself. <clears throat> there is no other metaphor, no other analogy 
no other reality that can point us to Jesus like sitting at a meal. Every time you eat food, something has died. An animal has died or a plant has died. Something has died so that you might live. Something has been sacrificed so you can have sustenance. Does that ring a bell? It is the sacrifice of something for the life of many. It is the sacrifice of one for the life of many. It is the willingness of God to die so that he might feed the world with his life. And he has orchestrated the world in such a way that we now have physical reminders like food that fill us physically, but also point us to a spiritual reminder that we need to be filled by God himself. And that will either make you bitter or it will make you joyful, but it will not make you bored. There is no middle option. It is either gratitude or it is cynicism. And I want us to celebrate and eat communion together with a genuine heart of gratitude. I want to become, by the power of the Spirit, a person of gratitude who gives thanks, who looks at the world with sheer awe and wonder and points me back to God. I want to be a part of a church that is full of gratitude. Philip Yancey puts like this. <clears throat> the table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the tables, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold our little cups high to toast lost sinners found and dead brothers and sisters alive. There is something to celebrate and be grateful for. Fourth is the Lord's Supper. This is the modern use. It's most well-known in our context. And the Lord's Supper, which is what many of us call it, is about a covenant. We have spoken quite a bit about this idea of covenanting with God. It's not only a meal where God brings himself to us in the experience of eating and drinking together, but where we bring ourselves to bear before God. This is the Lord's Supper, and we have been invited as guests. But we are also guests who are claiming with our lives that there is one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all who is above all and in all. And us gathering around the table, it is our desire, though broken and fallen, to say, Jesus, help me follow you. To eat at the Lord's table is to be committed to the Lord's covenant. To say yes to following Jesus is not a simple prayer and then you're beamed up to heaven when you die. To say yes to Jesus is to say yes to an abundant life of surrender and openness to God, to pouring yourself out, to sitting in his presence, to asking him to reorder your desires and to mine the scriptures so that you might know him more and love him more. It is to proactively spread the mission of God to your neighbors and to the poor and to the ones whose society and sometimes even the church has tossed out. And to see each person as someone made in the image of God and to reorganize your life in such a way that begs the question, why? 
Why? Sitting at the table of God is a declaration that the powers of evil and suffering and darkness do not win. That there is another kingdom with another king and that he is seeking anyone who might want him. He is not picky and his only desire is that you would answer the door that he is most assuredly knocking on. And he is after your heart and he is after the world. And so sitting at the table means admitting that it is the Lord's table. It is his meal that he has invited us to and now we re-up our commitment to him as people who eat in the meal and serve the world by his spirit for the purpose of his glory. It is our great privilege to come with our need of God. And it is his great joy to give himself to us. And in receiving him, we are now empowered by him to pursue him and the world with greater joy. The fifth name is Mass. Or in Latin, Ita Missa Est. Which means go. You are sent out. When Christianity reached Rome and when the meal became regularly celebrated in Latin, the end of the meal would be signaled by the person presiding over it saying, Go, you are sent out. This is what many of our Catholic friends call it when they practice communion. And while we may disagree on some of the theological implications of how they practice it, what I love about this is that it is a commissioning service. The meal that we eat is meant for us. But not only us, we are to become the bread for hungry neighbors and we are to become the water for thirsty sinners. And Jesus came and broke himself open and Jesus came and poured himself out. And the invitation is for us to embody such sacrifice. We are called out. We are the called out ones. We are the sent ones. Go, you are sent out. We are rooted in the love of God and we are sent out with the love of God. We find our identity in God himself and we are catapulted into the world with the only thing that we have a firm grip on, the love that God has for us and the love that sent him into our world. We enjoy the meal, but we don't hoard it. We are to become generous people. We are to become people who are hospitable. We are to become people who look out for those who are searching for something, anything. We have heard good news and the announcement of God's arrival in the world is that. And now we share the good news that there is a God whose center of gravity is love. So we've established the Lord's Supper was a meal around a table with the church. So how did we get from there to here? Well, like I said, the earliest record of the Lord's Supper outside the New Testament is found in the Didache, which was an ancient document published around 100 AD that describes the meal. And over the course of the first and second century, something happened in the church. Ignatius, who was a disciple of John, had a profound impact on the language that was used around the Eucharist towards that of the altar and not so much of the table. It was about the sacrifice and less about the resurrection. And so what once was a meal started to be merely bread and wine. This happened over several years and the story is more complex than we have time for. But let's just say that there was still a meal in the church and that meal was called the agape feast or the love feast. And these would happen on Sunday evenings, but these were distinct and different from the Eucharist. The Eucharist became dominated by altar language, 
and the agape feast became dominated by the table language. But again, over time, as we talked about uh, last week, uh, the agape feast tended to be abused, like we saw in Corinth. And here's what happened. The Eucharist was restricted to baptized believers, but the, 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 the neighbors and the poor and the widows and others in the community were invited to the agape feast. Ultimately, the Eucharist became a liturgical event in the assembly of the church, and the agape feast became a benevolent ministry event outside of the formal assembly. And by the end of the 7th century, the love feast had disappeared and the table dimension of communion had been completely wiped out. In fact, tables ended up being forbidden in church buildings and the altar became the focal point. And this would ultimately change the mood and the practice and the atmosphere around communion. Now, if you think about it, there are some practical implications as to why this separation happened, and some of them are not purely theological. Early church fathers argued that since the whole church must be gathered to take the Eucharist, it is no longer feasible to meet in homes. And when the church began to gain a sense of power and prestige in the Roman world, they began to secure buildings and spaces that were larger than homes. So you had this divide, home-based domestic meetings and ecclesial church-based meetings. And a family meal became a lot less practical when you were trying to feed a thousand people every week. And over the course of church history, there have been so many changes and so many various stages of how we think and embody and practice the church. And though the history is complicated and complex and nuanced, I think there is an argument to be made that boils down to about four big stages of church architecture that have defined how we practice so many things in the church. So the first is the home. Hundreds of years where you met in homes, right? Even now, churches all across the world meet in homes, specifically where practicing Christianity is illegal. And in the home, the center of gravity was the table. And in many ways, it still is. And there was a lot going on in the early church. And although we can't know for certain how they practiced every single thing and every single iota of um, church polity, we have it on good authority, both in the text and in the historical church documents that have been passed down for centuries, that the table was the center of the church. That resurrection was meant to be celebrated all the time. That life and joy and generosity and encouragement and sharing of things, all things, was par for the course of the early church. But over time, Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman world, and there were cathedrals built. And these were built in the shape of a cross. And with this shift, the meal devolved into a drink and a bite, or as I affectionately call it, the sip and snack. And you weren't feeding that many people on a regular basis, but there was still the practice of the Eucharist. But there's something else that's interesting here. While teaching still happened, it did not happen like it happens now. So a few years back, Sarah and I went to Italy and we stepped inside uh, St. Peter's Basilica, which is a massive cathedral in the Vatican City. There is no preaching that is happening in there. For one, you can't hear anything. I could be standing 20 feet from Sarah and there's no way she can hear me. The sound was bouncing off the walls left and right. 
And in the midst of the cathedral stage of architecture, many Christian leaders were aware of their Jewish heritage and sought to use imagery from the Old Testament to describe their life. And specifically, they emphasized they were not a new family, but rather a continued extension of the people of God in the Old Testament. And so for these reasons, they would begin to call themselves priests, even though they were not sacrificing animals like the priest in Israel. And what they were honestly doing was leading worship or leading a service. But as we all know, language defines so many things. And over time, priest became a familiar figure in the church. And one of the main functions of a priest was to offer what became known as the sacrifice of the mass. And priests became powerful and prominent figures, performing a thought-to-be miracle by turning ordinary bread and wine to the literal body and blood of Jesus. But the idea is that Latin was being spoken in the mass, and no one spoke Latin. because, uh, And so you didn't even know what exactly you were partaking in. And so we, the way we've thought about preaching and teaching more or less comes from the Reformation, where we have Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and William Tyndale and a host of other names. And essentially, they wanted to recapture some of the orthodoxy and orthopraxy of basic Christianity. So they agreed on a few things, right? The scripture must be read in one's own language and worship must be done in the tongue of the people. The mass was presented in Latin and no one attending the mass spoke Latin And therefore, there was no cognitive understanding of what was happening in worship. Following Jesus also was a matter of trust, not a matter of works. God justified sinners based on his grace, not based on their merit. And clergy were people with specific tasks, but not with inherently more dignity. And the divide between the laity and the clergy needed to go. And in the middle of all this was the divide between mass and communion. And what the reformers did do is recapture much of the theological significance of communion, but what they failed to do, I believe, is implement it in practice. And during this stage, we move from the cathedral to the pulpit. So before the printing press, if you wanted to hear the scripture in your own language and hear someone interpret it to you, you had one option. You go to a space where you can listen to them preach. Churches were built like rectangular boxes, and the first, if the first move was from the table to the altar, the second move was from the altar to the pulpit. Preaching became a central theme of the church, and you would travel for a long ways to hear someone preach. And again, over time, things like music began to play a more significant role in the church. Music has always been a part of the church, and it's all over scripture. But in the general assembly of the gathered church, it began to get specialized. And so over time, uh, we moved from kind of the soapbox, someone would get up and preach, um, to the theater. Not dissimilar to what we are in now, where a built-in pipe organ is behind me and a grand piano is beside me and I'm in front of you speaking. And whether it's a small building like this or a large megachurch somewhere else, the theater style is now a predominant mode of a church service. And if you think about it, it is a service, a place where you go to get served, very much like a theater, a place where you go to get entertained. Everyone is in rows. Everyone is facing forward. Everything up here, including me, is projecting outward. It's literally built, the architecture is built based on acoustics. How can we amplify the sound in such a way that many people can hear, even if only one talks? 
this is not me saying any of this is all bad or all good, but the question that we posed was, how did we get here? And now the communion is practiced as a, 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 a sip and a snack, a bite for the most part, particularly because you can't have a meal in this setting. And the church in the West hasn't really ever practiced a meal as communion. There are some traditions that have maintained it, but for the most part, it's fairly sparse. So for the last six to eight weeks, we've talked about this idea of communion. And in two weeks, we will gather on our last teaching on communion. And if this is how we got here to this moment, and this is some of the historical uh, Orthodox teachings on communion as according to the scripture, we have to ask the question, where are we going? What might it look like? What, how might we reimagine what God is inviting us into? How does communion tangibly get fleshed out? We've talked a lot about theology. We've talked about method, talked about history, talked about where even the church has failed. But what might it look like for an imperfect church with imperfect people to flourish in this celebration? I want for for this church, I want for our church, I want for the table to become the center of gravity again. And I think it may have some profound meaning as we pray and as we listen and as we dream and as we talk and as we experience the intimacy of Jesus with the family of God around the table. I genuinely believe it ha- could have a sincerely powerful impact if we bring ourselves to bear because we can be confident because God has said he will bring himself to the table. Now we must bring ourselves. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.